0: Welcome to Uncommons, I'm your host Nathaniel Erskine-Smith, and on this episode with the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis and the tragic death of Regis Korczynski Paquette here in Toronto, I discuss racism in our criminal justice system with Professor Akwazi Owusu-Bempa, a criminologist at the University of Toronto, Director of Research for Cannabis Amnesty, and an expert in race, crime, and criminal justice. Akwazi, thanks so much for joining me.
1: Absolutely, my pleasure. I appreciate the invitation to chat. We have
0: protests going on in Canada, but obviously started out in the United States in the wake of the murder of George Floyd. A number of people here in Canada like to say we aren't the United States, but we are closer to the United States than we like to think.
1: Absolutely. Um, And that goes beyond just sharing a border, (laughs) (laughs) which I don't think is what you actually meant. But uh, yeah, uh, you know, a fair bit of my research has... uh, Examine the experiences of Black people, predominantly, and Indigenous people in our criminal justice system, and you know much of the research in this area comes from the United States, and so it's difficult not to you know draw on American literature and and draw comparisons as well. Uh, I've lived and worked in the United States too, and so I think you know that experience itself also kind of solidifies this belief, and you know this is a view that not only do I hold, but but others uh, hold now and have held for, for quite some time.
0: One of the numbers I saw, so we're looking at fatalities and in police interactions, and you look at numbers from, I think it's 2000 until 2017 here in Canada. These are, these are Canadian stats from StatsCan, and you see clearly disproportionate impact on Black and Indigenous people here mm-hmm. in Canada. And while it is, yes, better than the United States, I guess, in terms of overall numbers, it's still... Very much worse than other peer countries.
1: Yeah, and and I think uh, like I would love to see the stature mentioning that you know from my perspective. And this is perhaps one of the things that we'll address a little later on. Is like we've got a lack of you know readily available data in many of these areas, and certainly don't have data that's systematically collected and then reported from our criminal justice agencies. So on the use of force piece, th- that data has come either from media investigations, and so the CBC did an investigation recently, which I think is probably where those statistics are coming from, as well as the Ontario Human Rights Commission have recently commissioned a report, as well as the inquiry into the death of of Dudley George. But that to say, your interpretation is correct. You know, I I think we're fortunate in comparison to the United States that uh, we live in a much less violent society and that we have less police violence. And so everybody in America is more likely to experience violence, period, and more likely to experience violence at the hands of the police. But with that said, you know, one of the things that I'm interested in examining are like racial differences and racial disparities. And that's where, you know, the numbers tell a bit of a different story. For example, over the last several years in the city of Toronto itself, for example, a black person was 20 times more likely than a white person to be fatally shot by the police, right? 20 times more likely. So although, you know, everyone's got a lower chance, that lower chance, you know, doesn't apply equally to uh, members of all groups.
0: Now, the premier of quebec said recently we don't have systemic racism here in quebec and it's i think a, a often a conservative trope in some ways to say well maybe there are individual bad actors at times and we can root those out but you know if if we see the numbers that are x number of black people who are arrested or x number of indigenous people who are arrested well it's because there's more crime in those communities and it's not it's not racism
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, there are a number of kind of critiques of that statement. I think as someone who often requests racially disaggregated data from the government and from criminal justice agencies, I've got to say that Quebec is one of the worst in the country with respect to making that information public. And I think it does that in order to protect itself from allegations of discrimination. Right. I think, you know, when we contrast in this sense the Canadian experience to the American one, the American experience with slavery, uh, with segregation, and with, you know, very public unrest as a result of the discrimination emanating from both of those things, as well as the consequences of, like the legacy of those systems, is so much more readily apparent in the United States that you cannot deny you know, the existence of historical discrimination and racism. And and many Americans would say, well, you know, those don't factor into what's happening now. And they look at a failure of those communities, right? I think in the Canadian context, there are several differences. One, of course, you know, so we had slavery here in Canada. Uh, Six of the first 16 legislators of Upper Canada held slaves, right? This was a system in which the individuals who were held as shadow were exactly that. They were property. They were not viewed as human. So that tells us something about how the people that founded this country viewed black people at the time. But, you know, the the, the couple hundred year history of slavery in this country, as well as the presence of segregation and, and the last segregated school closed in Canada in the 1980s, Right. Is something that most Canadians don't know, right? We had segregation, either in law or, or de facto, across many areas of Canadian social life. It was ingrained; it has been ingrained into the fabric of our society. So, when you combine the fact that that information is largely absent from our history books, also, you know, when we talk about the Indigenous situation, really in the area era of post-truth and reconciliation, that we have a conversation about the experiences of Indigenous today that we have today, right? Like when we looked at many of the social ills afflicting Indigenous people, when we looked at, you know, poor educational and employment outcomes, issues related to alcoholism and substance abuse and levels of violence, those were historically all viewed as failures of Indigenous people, right? It's only now that we say, okay, yes, the reservation system, the residential school system, the systematic attempts to physically and culturally annihilate this group has caused the problems that we're seeing, right? We haven't had that conversation, I don't think, to nearly the same extent with respect to our, our Black or African Canadian populations. So we, when we see crime and violence in our communities, it's looked at, yes, as a problem of those communities, as opposed to an outcome of, you know, those very historical structures, because they, they did, they structured, you know, the nature of our society, of political, economic, and social relations.
0: I think you're right i knew that the last residential school closed in the early 1990s but i did not know the very late date in the 1980s on segregation exactly i recently read when my three-year-old goes to bed at seven my wife and i hang out and we watch netflix occasionally and then when she goes to bed i stay up and read and i read in the wake of everything happening in the states i read where do we go from here by Martin Luther King, and he emphasizes time and time and time again that when slavery ended, when any progress was made on civil rights, they still did not see the economic justice required. And of course, then we are going to see the knock-on effects of that historical injustice play out, whether it's in criminal justice, in health, in education, until such time as there is greater economic justice. Mm -hmm. And that is what I think of when I think of that kind of systemic racism and the enduring effects of these historical injustices
1: yeah I, I think economics play a huge part in this right like uh, our economic situations our financial situations determine so much of our life outcomes right when we think about health when we think about education when we think about opportunity generally and along with that right like in the american example it's not just the lack of those economic opportunities but it's also the segregation of populations into areas where those opportunities are, you know, just completely absent, which then reproduces those problems, right? So I think you know, and it, we most certainly need to have a conversation. You know, in the Canadian context, it's largely black children and black families and Indigenous families who are much more likely to live in poverty, to experience poverty, right? And we know the vast majority of people who experience poverty do not engage in, in things like crime and violence. But there's an overrepresentation of impoverished people in the types of criminal activity that come to the attention of the police, right? Not the white-collar and corporate crimes that cause all kinds of devastation that we don't pay much in the way of attention to, but the types of issues that we have the police address and so I think you know that the economic side of this is important but it it also needs to be coupled with like a form of integration right like we're talking about equal opportunity with respect to equal access to wealth but we, we, we also need to think about like whether or not these groups are like fully integrated into our societies in other ways too right and and with of course economics comes like political power too you can lobby you can Uh, run for office and things like that. But, you know, the the political and the social part, I think, is important here as well. But we're certainly not going to deal with these problems, you know, if we we simply focus on the social.
0: In 2014, you published a significant amount of work on race and criminal justice in Canada. You've pointed to, though, a lack of statistics here in Canada. And to get to the solutions that we need to get to, how important is building out that picture and, and are those statistics to getting where we ultimately need to get?
1: So, like, in my opinion, the statistics are very important to enable us to identify problematic areas. And, you know, many people already know where the problematic areas lie, but at the same time, there's a primacy in numbers. And importantly, you know, if you're a policymaker, you need to then set a target and then figure out how you're going to reach that target. So, as I have said, we've got a systematic absence, a systemic absence of race-based data across a number of social systems. And we need that, right? Uh, As I've said, in order to identify issues that need to be dealt with to determine whether, you know, these are a result of, you know, we can talk about discrimination and disparity. So just because we've got an overrepresentation of a certain group in an outcome doesn't automatically equal discrimination, right? It could be a disparity that's a product of another underlying factor. And so we can identify areas of discrimination, and we can also ad- identify dis- disparities that are coming from other factors and, and try and work on those factors. But once we have decent data, then it's a matter of you know determining strategy and figuring out how to move things forward. I say the data is very important. The United States has ample data on race across its you know, social institutions. The United Kingdom, similarly, right? Like the Home Office in the UK, uh, the FBI annually and, and quarterly produce the type of reports I would love to see produced in the Canadian context uh, availability of that data led oftentimes to little in the way of substantive positive change right so there needs to be more than just the data but you know in terms of a starting point when we look at issues related to for example race and policing in Toronto black communities in Toronto have long known that they experienced discrimination at the hands of police right the Toronto stars reporting on this issue in the early 2000s was not news to black torontonian's but it was news To white Torontonians, and certainly brought attention to this issue, and then brought a level of political attention to this issue that has, in my estimation, moved discussions and, and in some senses, policy and practice forward.
0: And you mentioned the way we criminalize certain activities. In many ways, we criminalize the example you use of we don't go after white collar crime in the same way that we maybe go after drug trafficking, and even in many cases, drug users. And as someone who used cannabis when it was illegal, fairly regularly I as a very privileged white person in the city of Toronto would never have been afraid of the police in a way that I know black people disproportionately affected by it absolutely would be
1: yeah and I think that's you know it's interesting enough I do a fair bit of work around cannabis and legalization as well and I remember telling a friend of mine who grew up and and still lives around the University of Toronto campus in the annex and uh, he said prior to legalization when I started talking about legalization isn't it already legal and i was like tells me that it is for you right but it's not for (laughs) anybody else and i think you know that's important as well and that goes back to some of what we've said like in terms of criminalization piece right like there have been strong associations made across history of criminality violence and danger with certain bodies right so the criminalization of blackness is a feature not only of the present, but it, like, it actually like stems back to some of the earliest forms of racialization as we know them today, right? So you know, many listeners would be also surprised to hear that the racial categories that we have today did not exist 600 years ago. Actually, the racial categorizations that we use today are really only decades old, right? Like the term visible minority, for example, is only used in the Canadian context and only emerged in the 1980s, right? And the process of creating those categories was a pseudoscientific one, but it didn't just involve separating people that looked different into different groups. It also involved the assigning of traits and characteristics to members of those groups. And that was done in a hierarchy, typically with whites at the top. Black and Indigenous people at the bottom. And in order to justify that inferior status, right, as I said, various associations were made. And one of those most certainly was uh, with violence and with danger.
0: And with drugs. So I'm shocked right now by everything going on in the United States. But I will tell you when I was first learning about the history of our drug laws, how much shock I had to know that we created laws against opium because of the yellow peril and afraid of Chinese people. We, the marijuana laws principally focus at Black and in the United States, even, even Mexicans. I mean, it is shocking when you look at the history and you realize we fear drugs today because we used to fear different people. It's so unacceptable.
1: So I'm rather fatigued today because I was up late last night finishing a paper on a reflection on legalization in the Canadian context. And, you know, I start the paper off with this history of Canadian drug law. And as you, you, know, you rightly say, and, and I was surprised to see in the Museum of Civilization in Ottawa and Gatineau uh, years ago, there was actually a piece on this, which I was surprised that, you know, the federal government technically uh, would have been promoting, documenting that history of criminalization with respect to the Chinese population and opium, right? So that, that came about because of concern. And this goes back to the finance piece, right? To the economic piece. We imported large numbers of Chinese laborers to complete the railroad, right? Once that railroad was complete, those Chinese laborers were seen as competitions to white folks. There was, of course, unrest. There were riots in Vancouver. And, and as a direct response to the riots, to the unrest and to the concern that white people had about Chinese people potentially taking their jobs, Opium, which had been associated with that population and was continually associated with that population, was criminalized, and those groups were targeted for that right similarly, Emily Murphy uh, celebrated oh, yeah. Canadian Famous um, five. right exactly uh, a key figure in the the uh, women 's rights movement and the uh, first you know female magistrate in British North America, perhaps at least in Canada, uh, you know wrote uh, in the Black candle and other places under her pen name, uh, Emily Canuck. Uh, about you know the Negro menace and the, as you say the Euro- yellow yellow peril and the dangers to white Canadians that would be inflicted upon the population by people of color and a key kind of piece of that association for her and and a key way in which whites would be denigrated was through the use of drugs that they would be introduced to by uh, non-white people so that is you know that is firmly rooted in Canadian history uh, as it is in in the American history and again you know, so few people are aware of that story. In the piece of writing I was just doing, you know, I was, I started off with that history. In the United States, you can trace that history to the present day much more succinctly. In Canada, there was of course a gap because I didn't have the data Um, to back up the, the, you know, the the smooth arc. So, you know, I've got studies showing that, you know, the Asian people are still the primary target of drug law enforcement in Canada up until the 1950s. And then there's a gap between the uh, 1950s and the 1980s. And it wasn't until Mulroney declared his war on drugs. And thankfully, the Commission on Systemic Racism in the the Ontario criminal justice system did its review. And it started to examine admissions to custody in Ontario for different crimes, including uh, drug importation and trafficking. And these numbers are stark, right? Between the late 1980s and early 1990s, the number of black admissions to custody increased in some of the Toronto area institutions by upwards of 3,000%. Holy right? shit. Exactly. And so at the, the, the end, the number would have been relatively small to begin with. So the 3,000% in, in a raw number is not, but you can just see the, the huge kind of growth. And, and the commission in its report remarked that as in the United States, the war on drugs in Canada has led to the disproportionate incarceration of, black Canadians, and had this negative effect on black people as well. And then so we've got that in the early 1990s. And then again, we've got this gap. And then the early 2000s, Rankin and the Star produce a bit of work. And then again, we've got a bit of a gap until Rankin does something else. And Evan Solomon gets a little bit of data, Rachel Brown. But other than that, we have very little to tell this story with, right? But we know it's a feature of our history.
0: If anyone is listening and had initially wondered if systemic racism is real, we have the disproportionate application of drug laws against Black people in the Toronto area, but across our country. And I know we can look to other provinces that are especially bad for Indigenous people too, including here in Ontario, but especially bad, I know, in Manitoba. And the laws in the first place, so it's not just the disproportionate application of the laws, the, the very creation of the laws were steeped in racism to begin with. Absolutely. I, yeah. Ah, and okay, then, so,
1: so. Yeah, so then I was going to say, before legalization, you, know, you go to certain areas of the city, and, and it was not unusual to smell cannabis smoke long before legalization, right? Of course. When you look at who was being arrested, and I've been involved in some other work that looked at racial differences in rates of use, and and what does it show, of course, that there are very little in the way of racial differences when it comes to uh, who actually uses these drugs.
0: So we know that more data is necessary and important, but we also know that that is, if anything, a first step on the way to larger solutions. And some justice solutions are critically important, I mean, when we look to the war on drugs, we should stop criminalizing people for using drugs at a minimum, and we should be reforming those laws. And so the justice minister can play an important role, but it does seem to me that the finance minister holds the keys to most of the solutions in the end. And that's where, in many respects, we ought to focus our efforts in terms of ending poverty and this notion of economic justice.
1: Yeah, I think the justice system, unfortunately for me, this is a realization that I came to after having completed my PhD and started my career as a faculty member, is that the criminal justice system, if you want to deal with these societal problems, is probably the last place to focus your efforts, because it's really too late, right? So I think you're right with respect to finance holding the key, but finance unlocking funds that can be directed at... Healthcare, at education, and importantly at things like culture, right? The heritage ministry, those that are responsible for telling our national stories, right, are, are are key institutions as well. Because as I said, like when when I look at the problem, I see a social aspect, I see an economic aspect, and I see a political aspect, right? We need f- full inclusion in those different areas. So we need equal economic opportunity. We need real political representation. And we need a society that does not view certain groups as inferior, as dangerous, as troublesome, right? They, they they need to be viewed as equal, integral parts of a diverse society, such as Canada. We pride ourselves on being multicultural, being inclusive, and being diverse. And we may be in terms of, and this is questionable as well, who we actually let in through our borders. But once people get here, oftentimes it's a very different story.
0: And you I've just mentioned you just finished writing an article on uh, a reflection on legalization of cannabis. You are very focused on research on race-based data. And I want to say, actually, I I should ask, I, I didn't ask, you know, you mentioned the History Museum or Museum of Civilization. When you look to what different levels of government, whether it be the city of Toronto, to agree to collect and published race-based data, or the federal government, our prime minister, talking about and encouraging disaggregated data and race-based data, there's obviously a positive movement on the data piece. Are, are there other specific policy initiatives on that front you think I should continue pushing on, and are we doing enough on that front?
1: So on the data piece, yes, like more data is good, but that data then needs to be used to identify problems that we can then work to address, right? So I think, you know, we need to, through Statistics Canada and our other agencies, build a more robust data collection mechanism with respect to race. Uh, but beyond that, you know, you've, you've identified a couple of levels of government. Uh, sitting here in Toronto at this exact period of time, I can say that I'm fortunate in that, like, this is a unique experience. We've got an anti-racism initiative at the municipal level, we got an anti-racism initiative at the provincial level and an anti-racism initiative at the federal level, right? As far as I know, that's the first time in Canadian history that one can say that they've got these, which are, you know, seemingly at the moment, quite robust initiatives with anti-Black racism as, and anti-Indigenous racism as, as main foci, right? And so it's a matter of further entrenching these systems as well, right? Like until the issues that we want to see resolved or resolved, which I don't unfortunately think we'll see in my lifetime, these should be core parts of these different levels of government, right? And these need to be better staffed, better resourced, and have long-term plans, right? They should be looking a century ahead, 50 years ahead, 20 years ahead, 10 years ahead, five years ahead next year, right? One of the issues that we have, again, like I can't say what specific initiative we need with relation to democratic processes and political participation and with respect to finance, health and education. What I can say, though, is that the more robust we can have these systems and we can have experts within these systems and we can have community participation in identifying the priorities and not have this three, you know, two to five year funding cycle of programming to deal with the Problems that we're talking about, the better off we'll be. One of the things that 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 uh, disheartens me or saddens me the most with respect to the type of work that I do is that many of the people doing the important work on the ground are, are engaged in work in organizations that work within a very short funding cycle, right? And that takes away from the work they're actually able to do. They compete with one another for funding. It means that evaluations are not nearly as comprehensive as they could be because organizations are more interested in ensuring their funding is being renewed than necessarily the actual outcome of what they're doing. And so, again, as I said, we need to kind of further build out the structures that have, uh, have emerged in this country. And again, that I think that we're at the forefront of in some respects, you know, the work being done by Toronto's confronting anti-Black racism unit, it stands as a model for, you know, other cities around the world. And, and I think that's important. The work that they do needs to be embedded in all elements of the city's operations, right? Uh, the same as at the federal level. Anti racism issues shouldn't just come under heritage, right? The, the individuals from heritage that are responsible for these files or other individuals within other ministries uh, and other units of government need to be championing this work as well. Otherwise, it becomes ad hoc and add on. And that's not going to be effective.
0: And for you, you have recently had your first kid, you are still publishing articles, what is the focus of your research in the months and years ahead?
1: It is disparate and all over the place. So I've gotta say that unfortunately, and this is changing, there are too few people engaged in the type of research that I am, at least, you know, from a criminological perspective. Uh, There are others in different disciplines, but there are too few of us within criminology and even within sociology in the Canadian context, which means basically that I do a lot of different work. So I've got ongoing projects looking at policing, policing generally with respect to racialized populations, as well as with respect to drugs as well. Looking at, and I think a very interesting initiative, and we've chatted a little bit about this that's emerging in Canada, uh, is the impact of race and culture assessments that are being used in increasingly in Ontario courts, an initiative first pioneered in Halifax to uh, educate the court and judges the extent to which historical and present-day discrimination is a criminogenic factor, as well as how discrimination leads people to courts. Engaging some very cool work, both provincially and federally, with respect to corrections. And then a fair piece, you know, even kind of aside from the criminal justice element around drug legalization generally and cannabis legalization in particular. You know, one of the things that I think is interesting, you talked about economics unlocking uh, or being a key to unlocking a, a lot of positive change. Like I see cannabis legalization as, as one key way in which we can you know, create opportunity, both through the revenue generated from the sale of legal cannabis, as well as the opportunities provided by, you know, this emerging legal cannabis industry these are jobs that people have long occupied as you said you consume prior to legalization canada's you know been a world leader in the production of cultivation of high quality cannabis but legalization brings with it a, a number of opportunities and there are certain jurisdictions in the United States, Illinois, California.
0: Yeah. I saw Oakland. Yeah.
1: Oakland, but you've got to see what Illinois is doing now. So Illinois yeah. is actually in their the amount of money that they've brought in. And and so they are, you know, the, the three key things are first of all, clearing the criminal records of people who were criminalized for something that's no longer illegal. But from there, it's priority access into the legal cannabis industry so that, you know, the wealthy elite business class that are currently dominating the industry uh, don't continue to, or at least we see some diversification. And then importantly, and, you know, Illinois takes 25% of the tax revenue generated from legal sales and puts it into a fund directed at rebuilding the communities most harmed by prohibition. So when I say that it's important, they are allowing individuals who've been criminalized as well as people from neighborhoods that were heavily policed, which you identify through data, of course. They, one, have the priority access, but two, they're taking 25% of those tax dollars And they have set up a board with representatives from different levels of government as well as community to facilitate community programming and the provision of grants to organizations within those communities that are working directly to reduce crime, reduce incarceration, build community capacity around education, employment, and community health. And that's the and not
0: by Julian Fantino a cottage.
1: Exactly, not by Julian Fantino, you know. And, and this is, you know, one of the things that really gets me about Canadian legalization is we have the very people who are responsible for the criminalization of large numbers of people occupying important positions in, you know, legal cannabis companies.
0: Agreed. And frustrating too that what seemed so very obvious at a minimum, which was simply deleting the records of people for simple possession, for some reason that was even a place that a liberal government my liberal government didn't even want to go so
1: yeah it's so i think you know that was a tough one in this piece that i was writing i'm reflecting on why cuz you know the we had a task force that task force was exploring legalization it was going to the united states it was going elsewhere it was accepting submissions why at the same time that america american jurisdictions was so seriously considering these social justice initiatives that canadian legalization wasn't And I think there were a few reasons. Part of it was simply the haste with which we implemented the legislation, right? So at the end of the piece, although I'm quite critical of the legislation, I say, hey, we're in a much better position than we were five years ago. And I'm very grateful to Trudeau and to the government for us being where we are now, right? But in that haste, we missed a large opportunity to promote positive social change, one that, you know, is going to be slow for us to catch up on. It's not too late, but We missed that opportunity because we did things too quickly. Would I say we shouldn't have legalized if we weren't going to do this? Absolutely not. We're better off, but we could have been much better off.
0: One reflection that I have is not only speed that presented a problem, but also that we simply weren't having the significant conversations about race and historical racial injustices in relation to drug prohibition that we could have had and that we should have been having. And I think the more that we talk about whether it's systemic racism, that we build up the statistics necessary to be armed with the arguments that we need to win the day, but the more that we have the conversation and identify where there are racial injustices, the better the solutions will ultimately be.
1: So, so, and, and I identified three potential explanations, and that was the first one, right? I start off with a lack of access to data, and I say that that could have been one. Now, with that said, Justin Trudeau said to a town hall hosted by Vice, right, that he recognized that marginalized Canadians were disproportionately likely to be charged. Bill Blair also made a similar comment. Not only that, of course, Bill Blair was the former chief of the Toronto police. He you know, knows very well about the nature of drug law enforcement. Jody uh, Wilson-Raybould was also on the task force, Right, Canada's first Indigenous attorney general, as well as former defense attorney and prosecutor. So I would be remiss to think that, you know, as I said, we've got the prime minister, his drugs are, and, and the turns out who we're all well aware of these issues. I think, you know, from a political standpoint, there's also what's sellable. Public health and public safety are much more sellable than social justice, right? Uh, another explanation was there wasn't sufficient consultation, although when I looked, the task force report, mentions indigenous people and communities 24 times and identifies a number of areas that they should be addressed in the legislation. The Cannabis Act mentions the word indigenous just once, and that's in reference to a need to assess the impact of legalization on indigenous groups at the three-year mark when there's a large study done to Impact. So, uh, as I said, I agree that the data meant that there wasn't a national conversation, which led to little action. There was certainly discussion during the consultations that didn't lead to much. And so I was like, okay, well, we did this quickly. We had, you know, national and international concerns to consider, right? Like we were breaking from international kind of law and policy, and, and we, there were a whole bunch of things that had to be considered there. But it, it leaves us in an unfortunate
0: Well, I hope it's something we revisit. I know there's a bill in the Senate from Senator Pate that would go a long way to deleting records like this. I initially was going to second that bill and sponsor in the House, and I then changed tax, and another member is going to sponsor that one when it gets to the House, and I'm going to sponsor a bill that would allow judges to retain discretion and to no longer have to apply mandatory minimum sentences where it is clearly unfair to do so, which I think will also have an impact upon basic equality of outcomes where we continue to see disproportionate application of those laws against Black and Indigenous people as well.
1: Absolutely. That's something that I would have liked to have seen considerably rolled back post-Harper era, right? Again, we've had mandatory minimums for a long time. They've had disproportionate impacts on certain groups, but they were certainly intensified under Harper. The Department of Justice has even produced a report demonstrating that those mandatory minimums, I think it was a 2015 publication, had a disparate impact on, for example, Indigenous populations and their incarceration. So we know what those have done. And again, we're not going to police, we're not going to incarcerate ourselves out of many of these problems. And so if we want to have a safer and healthier society, and we want to spend our tax dollars in a more effective and useful way, then unfortunately, it's not going to be the criminal justice system. I think, you know, going back to that financial piece, there are a lot of conservatives who may or may not be listening to our conversation who are going to go, well, like, you know, this is all nonsense. But at the end of the day, when you look at the economic arguments for much of what I've been discussing, there's a anywhere from a three to one to a five plus to one benefit on spending that comes earlier on in these social institutions, right? So I'm talking like, not even like education, but like, Uh, neonatal and prenatal care right and then in the early years like that's where we make a huge difference if you if you're not one that's amenable or susceptible to the social justice the fairness the equality argument uh, there's the economic argument to be made there if you don't want to be unnecessarily spending your tax dollars on things that aren't necessarily or are are ineffective not just not necessarily going to help but can be not only ineffective but counterproductive and one might explore some of the things that i've suggested
0: and if you are a prime minister who cares to address systemic racism, then it, it probably requires systemic solutions. So it requires much more than sprinkling tens of millions of dollars, as important as those are, for anti-black racism initiatives. It requires deep structural
1: change in many respects. Absolutely.
0: Akwazi, thanks for your time. Thanks for everything you're doing. And good luck with the four-week
1: Thank you. My pleasure. It's uh, always nice to chat with Get you. Get some sleep. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Cheers.
0: Thanks for joining us on another episode of Uncommons. Remember to subscribe at uncommons.ca for future episodes. It is incredible really to see the protests in Toronto and across the United States standing up for equality against police violence and against racism. It is horrifying though to see the police brutality and cracking down on these protests in the United States. Any attack on peaceful democratic protest is unacceptable, especially In the united states as an ally that holds itself out as a supporter of the rule of law democracy and freedom it is unreal to think that law enforcement fired tear gas at peacefully protesting american citizens in order to facilitate a presidential photo op but that's exactly what happened and it is unconscionable